The list is long and to a lot of people very confusing. We're talking about the language of money. How would you do if you had to define the following? Stocks, bonds, private equity, index funds, leverage buyouts, venture capital, hedge funds, fiduciaries, junk bonds, the Dow, the NASDAQ, S&P 500, risk, public pension plans, sovereign wealth funds, institutional investors, mark-to-market prices, Security and Exchange Commission, and the mortgage-backed securities, just to name a few. We asked Jeffrey Hook, author of The Myth of Private Equity, to give us some help in what often appears to be a somewhat secret world. Mr. Hook is a senior lecturer at Johns Hopkins Business School and has spent all of his adult life in and around the world of money. Jeffrey Hook, in your book... You have a comment that you make about Wall Street, and this is the quote. Wall Street has few deep thinkers. Why did you say that? I used to work on Wall Street, and I guess I've worked in Wall Street-type jobs for close to 40 years. And they take a narrow view, many of the people that work there, on society and civic life in general. And their narrow view is maximizing wealth, maximizing their income as opposed to looking at perhaps more diverse elements of society. And so that's really why I said that. In all the jobs you've had, which one did you really enjoy the most? I think the most interesting job and the one that I found personally most enjoyable was my time at the World Bank because I was traveling internationally a lot, meeting lots of different types of people, experiencing different cultures. I just think you can't duplicate such an experience. What do you think of the World Bank? I think the World Bank started off as a very valuable institution post-World War II. Unfortunately, it's sort of rested on its laurels, gone into a cycle of doing the same thing all the time and loaning a lot of money to companies, I mean, sorry, countries that really don't need it. So uh, I think it needs a rehaul. How much of the World Bank do we pay for, meaning the United States? Well, the World Bank's largest shareholder, of course, is the United States, and I think we own close to 20% of the stock. The organization itself is what's called self-funding. I mean, it raises its own money for the most part. Uh, There are some contributions from the stockholders, but it it tends to be an institution that raises its own funds. It's able to borrow in the markets on its own credit rating. So it's not a huge drain on the U.S. Treasury. Uh, We do, along with the other shareholders, guarantee the debt. So without us, the World Bank would have a much more difficult time of operating. You worked for Lehman Brothers. When and uh, what did you do? When I was at Lehman Brothers in the early 1990s, I was in the investment banking department. So I was doing things like initial public offerings, mergers and acquisitions, private placements of securities. I was a generalist banker, and I was mostly in the United States. I did the occasional international transaction as well. What's an IPO? An IPO is initial public offering. So that's when a company that's growing and needs more funds will sell stock to the uh, general public and institutional investors in the stock market. Of course, last year was a very active IPO market. There was quite a few high-tech and other deals in addition to all the what's called SPAC deals, Special Purpose Acquisition Company IPOs. How does the average person doesn't know anything about money, markets, uh, get into an IPO or can they? Generally speaking, IPOs are restricted by the underwriters, the investment bankers, to their favored clients, which would be big institutions. Now, why do they do that? Usually the IPOs are underpriced so that the underwriters limit their exposure in case there's a drop. So they underprice the deals, thereby guaranteeing a profit to their favored institutional clients. So most of the retail investors, people that would be listening, you're generally not going to get access to a typical IPO. You have to buy it in the aftermarket after the IPO has popped up 15 or 20% in price. 
course, some of these high-tech stock deals that were really hot, you know, after the IPO day, you know, they might have jumped 30 or 40 percent. So when did you first get interested in money? I started off uh, as a young person interested in it. I, you know, had a paper route. I had to manage the little business that was my paper route and collect money from from people that uh, subscribed to the paper. So I, I got a little a bit of an interest in business at a young age. I then went to college and grad school and majored in business administration. So I had an interest in it from a young age. Where'd you grow up? I grew up in Baltimore. And you went to University of Pennsylvania and the Wharton School for an MBA. How did you get there? That's one of the big schools and, uh, you know, big, the big, as you say, when you talk about the uh, endowments, one of the big schools with a big endowment. Yeah, they, they all the Ivies have these huge endowments that they invest in private equity, among other things. I was pretty studious as a young person, so that got me into the University of Pennsylvania, even though I wasn't from an elite prep school or something. I was in public schools in Baltimore. And then my studious nature continued in through college, and that got me into the grad school. If you were to advise, a, 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 as you say, a retail buyer of stocks or whatever, what would you tell them on how to learn about money? I think the best thing for a retail buyer is probably to buy a few books. You know, Buy a few books on investing in the stock market. There's plenty of them out there. And, you know, some of them are very good at explaining the stock market in plain language. So read a few books, get a feel for what's going on, and try to look at stocks on an individual basis in a rational way. You know, do not get sucked in by the hype of these some of these high-tech flyers or speculative offerings. Try to stick with the blue chips at first, and then you can diversify into the more risky options. Generally speaking, I think the average retail investor doesn't have a chance against Wall Street professionals. And from a money point of view, you're better off buying an index fund of the stock market. Maybe you could set aside 10 or 15% of your portfolio for just stock picking and just to have some fun with it. But it's going to be tough to beat the professionals. The title of the book we're talking with you about is called The Myth of Private Equity. When did you decide it was a myth? I've always been skeptical about the private equity business. I used to be a private equity investor. I worked for a couple of big funds and institutions when I was younger. Uh, and I don't think the people necessarily stupid in the private equity business, but I do think the business has been overhyped. So once I got to the university level, I had written a couple of academic papers with colleagues about the mediocre performance of private equity compared to the stock market. And so the book was sort of an outgrowth of the academic papers plus some nonprofit work I had done for taxpayer organizations uh, in the state of Maryland. And I had done some work for the state employees unions in New Jersey about their pension funds. So it was a combination of several experiences that led me to decide to write the book. Before we get into the nuts and bolts of private equity, let me ask you just about stock. I don't know which one. Let's, I'll pick General Motors. Let's say today I get up and decide I want to buy some stock in General Motors. Let's say for talking purposes, I want to spend $1,000. Where do I go? Well, most of us are just going to open a brokerage account. And there's online brokerage firms. There's the big wirehouses like Merrill Lynch or Morgan Stanley. So you would open an account with one of these organizations deposit your money in the account and then you either by the internet or by phone you'd order a thousand dollars worth of general motors it's gotten a lot easier than it used to be so you know that whole process shouldn't take you more than half an hour okay let's say i have a thousand dollars worth of stock in general motors where did that money go well the money went to the seller of the stock so general motors as Many of you know are going to be uh, it's going to be a stock that's traded on the New York Stock Exchange and some other exchanges. So when you place an order to buy the General Motors stock, there's a seller on the other side of the order. So your money does not go to the General Motors company directly at all. It really goes to the individual or the institution selling the stock. So it's simply a trade between you 
as the buyer and the seller. How often is it the case that nobody wants to sell? Oh, that's highly unusual in the market like the United States. You know, it's very fluid here. We have hundreds of thousands of buyers and sellers, not only in General Motors stock, but any more than, you know, three or 4,000 publicly traded stocks that are quite active. You occasionally run into that situation with these small, unknown, over-the-counter stocks where it's hard to get an active bid and sale market. And when I've traveled internationally, if you go to a country like, say, Colombia or Argentina or Malaysia, often the markets there are just simply not as big as the United States, so you would have less active buying and selling. So you could run into the situation where there's no bidders for the stock you want to sell. When in your own life did you make the most money? I made the most money when I was working on Wall Street as an investment banker, which probably accounts, Brian, for why it's a very popular business for graduate students to enter. How does an investment banker make his or her money? The banker really makes a you know, decently high salary. and most, A lot of them live in big urban centers like in New York, so they have to make a lot of money to cover the overhead. So there's a, a you know, decent salary, and then there would be a bonus at the end of the year, which is unusual in a lot of jobs, but the bonus could be one or two times your salary in many cases. So it's generally a pretty good living to be an investment banker. How do they determine the bonus? The bonus is determined... I guess, one, by how good a job you do, and two, what every other investment bank is paying for someone with your level of seniority, and three, there would be a part of the bonus that's tailored to perhaps how much business you helped bring in that year for the bank or how many transactions you helped close. So it's a multifaceted approach. Why do people end up in your classroom at Johns Hopkins? Where I teach at Johns Hopkins Carey Business School, we have a lot of students that are interested in finance. So finance would be one of our big majors. So they look, they canvass the number of business schools that offer similar finance programs, and they they figure out which ones they can get into from an application point of view. And I presume most of them maybe have two or three possibilities. They pick Johns Hopkins because of the reputation as well as the favorable location of the business school. You're in an urban center, and a lot of people like living in urban centers. So we have locations both in Baltimore and D.C., which is kind of unusual for a large business school. Earlier we talked a little bit about the endowments in universities. First of all, what is an endowment? Well, most of these big universities that have been around for 100 years or more, and that would include many established names like Harvard, Yale, Johns Hopkins, Princeton, University of Michigan, and so on, they've, over the years, accumulated a lot of savings, uh, principally from their alumni making donations to the university. The alumni have fond memories of the university. The university asked them for donations, and over as, as many of your listeners can imagine, over the decades they've been around, the, the money starts to pile up. So many of the older universities that have big name recognitions would have endowments of five, ten, fifteen billion dollars. Now, that money, those savings, are in part used to cover problems for a rainy day, but. Also, by law, 5 or 6% of that money every year has to be paid out to cover expenses or offer scholarships to students. Who runs endowments? Every big endowment will have an investment staff. So much like a mutual fund or a private equity fund, an endowment would have an investment staff. Sometimes it might be 15 people. Sometimes it might be 30, 40, 50. And these people would be charged with directing investments into various asset classes, such as stocks, bonds, commodities, real estate. So it would be generally a pretty professional operation if it's large enough. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible because we're already doing it 
all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. I looked up the top 10 endowments this morning before we started talking, and I'll read them very quickly so people can get an idea of how big they are. Harvard today is at 41 billion, Yale 31 billion, Stanford 28 billion, Princeton 25, MIT 18, University of Pennsylvania, your alma mater 14 billion, Texas A&M, which has 72,000 students, way bigger than all the rest of these schools, uh, 12 billion, Notre Dame, which is a relatively small school with 12,000 students, they have a 12 billion dollar endowment, University of Michigan 12 billion, and Columbia University, $11 billion. When you hear those figures, what comes to mind? Well, it's just staggering amounts of money. But you got to remember, it's been accumulated over decades and decades. And you hope that the earnings from those big pools of cash are directed toward good deeds at the university, funding student tuition or expenses or promoting research and development or other activities which benefit society as would befit a major university with a tax-exempt status. Of course, the big institutions such as public pension plans in California or New York, Illinois, would be far larger in many cases than these endowments. How much uh, in these endowments is it the investment uh, uh, private equity? The endowments tend to have a, and this may surprise a lot of people listening, they tend to have a pretty high percentage of their assets in private equity. It might be as high as 30 or 35%. And this is an illiquid investment, which means in plain English, you can't sell it like you can sell a stock on the public market. So they've gone in for the private equity marking pitch hook, line, and sinker and have a high proportion of their money in these assets. They also have a tendency to like hedge funds and private real estate, which would be sort of an exotic type of asset from the perspective of a retail investor, an average person buying mutual funds. What's a hedge fund? A hedge fund is a pool of capital, and it buys and sells publicly traded stocks and bonds, you know, with the theory that the hedge fund manager would be smarter than the stock market or the bond market in general and could beat those benchmarks. Private equity, on the other hand, I guess as we'll talk about in a minute, private equity is when the big pool of capital, the private equity fund, is not buying publicly traded stocks. It, on the other hand, is buying a small group of private companies with the hope of eventually turning that private company into a public stock or selling the private company in a merger. Go back to the hedge fund for a moment. Can I buy into a hedge fund? No, the average person cannot buy into a hedge fund because the government has set certain rules to protect the average person from Wall Street hedge funds which they often, the government often thinks are too sophisticated uh, and perhaps too complex for the average investor. So there's a few rules to keep people that don't, say, have a net worth of less than $2 million away from hedge funds, away from private equity. Some of these rules are being relaxed, but for many years the federal government had what you'd call a paternalistic attitude about sticking retail investors into these exotic instruments like hedge funds what do you think is the that people ought to know about the federal government's relationship to the money world well the federal government has for many years ever since the stock market crash in 1929 has played a major role in supervising the financial markets and The reason it does that is because it wants to avoid the kind of economic collapse that occurred during the Great Depression. And it just believes, as do uh, many other people, that leaving the financial markets to themselves is not a good idea, that they can't really control some of their excesses. And I, I think a lot of us saw this in 2009 when the 
financial crisis occurred, you know, without the benefit of the federal government's intervention, we could have had a major depression. So the government has set up various rules and disclosures and other requirements in the financial markets to try to sort of formulate a nice playing field for capital formation where companies can raise money in an efficient manner. And also it tries to level the playing field so no one has a distinct advantage over the other and trading is fair and efficient. And with these two goals in mind, the government hopes to create a deep and attractive capital market. And I'd have to say in general, the United States probably has the best capital markets. It's very deep. The disclosure is very good. And many, many countries around the world have tried to imitate it to try to get some of the benefits of a good capital market. What makes it good? Well, a lot of the information is above board. It's disclosed when someone sells stocks or bonds, what exactly the company does, what its results are what its uh, management team is and product line. So there's a lot of information that's available that would help people make decisions. And then the trading environment is monitored reasonably closely by the government. So it's helpful for business and it's helpful for the investors. You now have a situation where those businesses that deserve more capital or more money to expand are directed to those investors who have the money to invest in these companies. So it promotes capitalism. It promotes the wealth of our society. What's the difference between stocks and bonds? It's a very fundamental difference. If you look at bonds, let's start off with bonds. They have a fixed rate of return. So you, it's like a contract. You buy the bond, and the company promises to pay you a certain rate of interest every year, and then at the end of 5 or 10 or 15 years, the the company promises to pay you all the principal back. So that's a very conservative investment. Uh, You're not going to, in most cases, lose a lot of money because the rating agencies and others have analyzed the bond, and they've sort of graded it, you know, what the chances of are getting 100% of your money back. So the bond is kind of a conservative fixed return investment. Stocks, on the other hand, are no, there's no guarantees with stocks that you're going to get your money back. You are in second place. If the company runs into trouble, the bondholders get paid first. So the stockholders, while they do have sort of an unlimited upside, they also have the potential downside in a distressed or problem situation where the stock could go to zero and you lose all your money. So the stock market, while it has had pretty good runs the last 10 years, people got to remember that over the last 50 or 60 years, it has stocks have had severe ups and downs. So as, for example, many people buying high tech stocks the last five or six months probably have seen many of their holdings drop by 15 or 20 percent. You'd never see that with bonds. Bonds would never be so volatile. So just keep this in mind. Bonds are fixed returns, kind of conservative investment. Stocks, a little more volatile. They do provide a dividend, many of them, but they're still subject to the vagaries of the business cycle and individual problems. So from what you know about our government and how it relates to money, Congress and tax, you're in a room, you've been hired by a group of people to advise them about money, and they say to you, what can I do to avoid tax? Which of all these investments we're talking about is the best way to avoid tax? Well, the best way to avoid taxes, if you're a investor, whether you're a big institution that's taxable or you know just some regular person that makes a living and has a job, The best way to avoid taxes completely would probably be to buy stocks or bonds and just hold on to them. Do not sell them. Do not trade them. When you trade stocks and bonds, you create what's called a taxable event. So if you bought a stock at $10 and then you sell it in a few years for, let's say, $15, you've just 
created a, a capital gains tax of $5. Similarly, if you do the same thing with a bond, of course, the gainers, you know, you're, you're asking for a taxable event there as well. So the best thing to do, and this may alienate some people who like watching the stock or the bond market a day, is just hold on to the stuff. Do not trade it. If you've made a good investment, just hold it, and you're postponing the taxes to away in the future. On any given day, we hear talk across television. If you watch any of the news programs or the finance channels, you hear the Dow, the NASDAQ, the S&P 500, the Russell 2000. I can go on and on. But is there a way to understand the difference between those different markets? The index, as you mentioned, the Dow, the NASDAQ, the Russell 2000, these are all just collections of stocks, and they will move in line with each other. So the Dow, you can always look these up on the Internet or something. The Dow is comprised of 30 of the biggest stocks in America. The NASDAQ might have, depending on whether you look at the NASDAQ 500 or 100, maybe the top 100 over-the-counter type stocks. The Russell 2000 is comprised of smaller stocks. So these are all collections of stocks that have been placed in what's called an index so that people can measure their own portfolios against some kind of objective historical benchmark. That way, if I'm a big institution or a hedge fund that's buying stocks and people say, well, how'd you do this year? You know, they'll point to one of these indexes and say, see, I beat the S&P 500 or I beat NASDAQ 100. However, I didn't beat Russell 2000. So it's an objective marker, just like you'd give yourself a grade if you were uh, taking a test or something. It's a marker that's objective and that no one can argue with. A couple of quick things about stocks, and we'll go to private equity. It, when a, a piece of stock is traded, who makes money? In the, is there a middle person that makes money? Yes. So taking commissions or taking the difference between buy and sell is one of the big revenue generators on Wall Street. So a lot of Wall Street firms no longer charge a commission like, you know, $5 when you trade 100 shares of stock. However, they still are making the difference as a broker, as a middleman. So you may be selling the stock at $10, and the middleman is flipping the stock at $10.01 to some other buyer. So the, you know, the one cent difference might sound like peanuts to most people listening, but if you're doing 100 million shares in one day, that one penny adds up. What about the stock exchanges themselves? How does, a, how does the Dow make money? Well, the indexes are really designated by various uh, Wall Street firms that have determined what's going into the index. So if the index is getting quoted a lot or if people are running mutual funds that duplicate the index, like a lot of people have heard the term index funds, the index funds have to pay a royalty to the people that invented the index. And uh, it's not much, but again, you know, even if it's a fraction of a penny, if you add that 100 million times a day, it adds up. Does any government regulate private equity funds? Yes. In the United States, we ostensibly have an organization here in Washington called the Securities and Exchange Commission, which has authority over regulating private equity. I mean, for the last 15 or 20 years, there's been no sheriff in town or cop on the beat. You might say the SEC has had a hands-off policy toward the private equity industry. Why? I just think in part they have enough on their plate. They, you know, have to regulate bonds and stocks in the public markets. They don't have a really big enough staff, I think, to regulate the thousands of private equity funds in existence. And it may have just been the psychology of the SEC executives that, look, we, we've got enough on our plate. We, we think the 
private equity business can monitor itself. You've got sophisticated investors. They don't need any hand-holding from the SEC. The um, SEC has made noises about reversing that kind of hands-off policy. They just came out with a big proposed regulation to put more monitoring devices on the private equity industry to cure it of some of its excesses. I want to go to your Chapter 8. It's called The Staffs. Before I ask you a direct question about, uh, I want to put a face to this whole story. Before I ask you that direct question, what does the word equity mean in when it comes to money? Equity in the term private equity or the equity of a big company like Exxon or Amazon is just the common share value. So if Amazon, if you hear on TV that Amazon has got a, a market cap of or market equity value of $1 trillion, that means if you take all the common shares of Amazon and multiply them times the price per share, the equity value of the company is a trillion dollars. So it's not a very complicated number, and you can see it on a lot of computer screens like Yahoo Finance or Bloomberg. What is private equity, and why do you call it that? So private equity has been around for, I don't know, 30 or 40 years in its present form. So private equity is an investment class, which in many ways is similar to many of the public stocks that you see on the stock exchange, except the companies are private. They, they do not have a public stock quotation. And the private equity fund, which is a collection of big investors that put money into the fund, they have hire people like myself, staffs of 10 or 20 people that have investment banking backgrounds often to go out, take the money in the pool, and buy companies. The idea is you buy private companies, hold them for several years, try to improve them or try to do some financial engineering to improve them, and then sell them. So it's a 10-year cycle where the institutional investors are putting money into the hands of these managers The managers run around, find private companies to buy, and then try to flip them in a few years. The entire objective of this convoluted process is for the institutions to make more money in private equity than they would just buying the stock market. That's the whole idea behind it. Again, it started 30 or 40 years ago in earnest. It's now turned into an amazing juggernaut, which is not only buying lots of different businesses, but it's branched out into real estate. Uh, it's branched out into hospitals and health care. It's, it's uh, unstoppable. It's a virtual octopus. In your Chapter 8, you start off that chapter by talking about Carlisle Group's David Rubenstein. Why? David Rubenstein and the Carlisle Group are very prominent. You know, The Carlisle Group is one of the biggest private equity fund complexes. It's here in Washington. I had met him. I had met a couple of people that had invested the fund in the Carlisle Fund. So I just thought it was a good anecdote and uh, example to bring out. The Carlisle Group at that point had had a couple of bumps in the road with its funds. So it was a sort of a counterpoint to all the hype and misinformation you tend to see in the private equity business. The current governor of Virginia came from Carlisle. Um, he'd never been in government before then. Uh, what would be the, I don't, I don't know what the question is, the advantage to having somebody run your government who had come from Carlisle? Well, the advantage, at least initially, from Governor Yenkin's point of view and that of the the Republican Party, that you know, which he nominated for the job, was that he had an immense amount of money, so he could finan- essentially finance his own campaign, which is a little tough for you know most politicians don't have that wealthy background. So he, you know, he's from the point of view of running a political campaign, he had a solid base of money to fund all the advertisements and organization. Now, actually having a person in government with a private equity background, I just don't think that brings anything special. I I like having people with a business background in some kind of political job because I think uh, too many people in, in our legislatures, and I've met plenty of them, 
you know, need a little bit more of a refresher course in how business works and how accounting works and how business and government interact. So I think it's a mild plus. I think there's plenty of governors that are well qualified that don't have a private equity background and would, you know, could do fine jobs. I might add that the prominence of private equity and the huge wealth that has been generated by these private equity managers, despite their mediocre performance, they've they've generated huge money and wealth for themselves. You see private equity executives sprinkled all through the government, not only in the Trump administration, but in the Biden administration. There's been, you know, a number of high level people with private equity backgrounds and even the Federal Reserve chairman. Uh, by the way, he was at Carlisle Group as well. So they've gotten their fingers into high levels of government, high levels of business. They're prom- you know, they are often board members of prominent cultural institutions and uh, universities. So private equity has achieved uh, quite a prominent level in our society. Well, the reason I brought up your chapter with David Rubenstein <clears throat> is because if you live in Washington, and it, you don't have to live here, but it, if you do, you you can't miss his involvement in everything in town and just to give listeners who might not know this uh, you mentioned some of these in your book he's chairman of the council on foreign relations which is not government but full of former government types he was chair of the smithsonian institution he's the chairman of the economic club of washington Uh, he gave seven million dollars to repair the washington monument $10 $10 million to Decatur House to repair that, where the White House Historical Foundation is. He gave $10 million to the African American Museum, and his name is very big in front of the uh, David Rubenstein Gallery. He gave $18 million to restore the Lincoln Memorial, $10 million to the new library at Mount Vernon, $2 million to buy the Emancipation Proclamation, $22 million to buy the Magna Carta, he appears on his own program called Peer to Peer on Bloomberg Television. That's transferred to PBS, where it's on every Friday night. He's on the Library of Congress James Madison Council uh, Group, which is private industry outside of the Library of Congress. Uh, he's at the New York Historical Society, where he does interviews up there. He's the chairman of the National Book Festival, where he does interviews on stage there. Uh, He's on the board of the National Constitution Center. Um, He gave actually $50 million to the Kennedy Center back in 2013. I list all this. I hope I haven't bored you or the audience, but it's just interesting that he's here. And I wonder if you think all of that has any helpful benefit to the Carlisle Group. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, David Rubenstein, he's also the author of several books, uh, I might add. I mean, he's in a way, he's a Renaissance man, and he would be, you know, perhaps a a good example of how private equity executives with their immense wealth can return some of it back to society. So you see that, that pattern repeated if you look at similar type institutions in New York or Philadelphia or Boston, where there's a lot of these private equity titans, you know, some of them have decided they were going to give some of that immense wealth back to these institutions, be they cultural or NGOs. And, you know, I admire him for doing that. I I do. I think that's a good thing to do. Uh, Whether the larger role of private equity in our capitalistic system is beneficial to society is a totally different argument, one that, you know, people have kicked around the last few years as the business has grown bigger and bigger. Well, I think you mentioned in your book that one of the important things for somebody in private equity is how they attract new businesses and their connections to people that can bring business in. And if you go deep into all of these organizations in Washington or even the Carlyle Group and their board, you can see people that are involved in all kinds of government institutions and all kinds of industries. And I wonder if that's good or bad, and it should, should it be more regulated? I don't think there's anything wrong necessarily with having prominent people in business or prominent ex-government officials sitting 
when companies owned by private equity, inherently there's nothing wrong with that, but I think you do at some point, you know, get into the problem of influence peddling where private equity funds hire government officials, be they in the United States or in other countries, to direct sovereign wealth funds to invest in private equity or, in, let's say, locally to invest, have state pension funds invest in private equity. So it's tough to monitor these things. But you have a, you know, the situation in American capitalism with people of prominence are going to attract lots of uh, cooperators, people that you know want to help them expand their businesses and will use their connections accordingly. I don't think we can police it. I just think we have to be aware of it. So go back to your your whole issue of private equity. When does it go wrong? So private equity, and I, the book specifically covers leverage buyouts. That's really about two-thirds of the private equity business. And we've all heard of leverage buyouts where the private equity fund borrows a lot of money to buy a company in the hope that having more debt will improve their investment performance. There's a couple other kinds of private equity funds. Everybody's heard of venture capital. Uh, you know, venture capital is prominent in you know helping younger businesses often with a high tech flavor get started and continue their business there's also also something called growth capital but the book covers leverage buyouts which is about two thirds of the private equity business wait a minute hold and, on a second I want to ask you what is leverage and the combination leverage buyout so when a private equity fund buys a company you know generally speaking the private equity fund and those investors we talked about are only putting up 20 or 25 percent down. So it's like a real estate mortgage that people have encountered when buying a house. You put down 20 or 25 percent, you borrow 75 percent from a lender when you purchase a house. So that might sound natural to most people, but in the corporate world, because of corporate earnings tend to be uh, more volatile than house prices. Usually, most companies are only going to buy something with 30% debt. But so the private equity has taken the debt leverage principle to the extreme, and they're borrowing 70 or 75% of the purchase price. So that's called a leveraged leverage, meaning more debt buyout. Buyout meaning you buying an entire company. So that's the slang expression, leverage buyout where you're just borrowing a lot of money to buy a company in an unusual leverage ratio that was typically not normal 20 or 30 years ago. It's been accepted, as you know, from, uh, I guess, the 1990s onward that we can borrow a lot of money and not have a lot of risk of bankruptcy. Of course, the risk of bankruptcy is always there, and you know, probably one of the best-kept secrets in the private equity business is that Perhaps a quarter to a third of private equity deals that are leveraged buyouts go bankrupt. And, you know, I mean, what's one famous bankruptcy? Toys R Us, Neiman Marcus, but there's many others. So when it comes to the leveraged buyout chapter on Carlisle, you talk about a bunch of businesses that didn't make it. How does that impact the investor? The private equity business or the leverage buyout business specifically, it's just a <clears throat> sort of a game of odds. So the typical buyout fund or Carlisle type fund, you know, is going to buy, let's say, 10 companies. And they're going to put a lot of debt on each one, just like we talked about. So generally speaking, they know that two or three of those 10 will go bankrupt. So they're return to the investors in those three or four deals is going to be zero. Uh, the equity investor there gets nothing. Two or three of them will probably be okay. They might return five or 6% to the equity investors. So you say, gee, that doesn't sound very exciting. You're telling me out of six, you know, three go under, three or four only are returning five or six or 7%. But it's the top three out of the 10 that might return 25 or 30%. So you're buying 10 companies, 
And when you add in the average returns of all 10, you know, the, the total return to the fund might be 15% a year, which is okay in the investment business. Nothing special. It's about the same as the public market. But, you know, it's just a lot more risk since you have three going under, going bankrupt, essentially. So if you work for a private equity firm, how do you make your money? So the private equity firms make money through a variety of fees. The most prominent fee is a 2% fee on the commitments, the monetary commitments that the investors are making. So it's sort of like owning a mutual fund, as many of your listeners may already know. Often the mutual fund is charging 1% off the top uh, for buying and selling the funds, stocks. So in the private equity fund atmosphere, you know, there's a much higher fee. It's 2% off the top. Then there's another fee, which is called a performance fee, and sometimes it's called a carried interest, whereas if the fund does better than, say, an 8% return, then the private equity fund gets a big bonus. So, you know, since the stock market's been going up the last 10 or 20 years, the bonus can be considerable for funds that do okay. So you got the fixed fee, and then you have the performance fee. And then there's a variety of other fees that these private equity funds collect. They charge the companies they own, management fees and consulting fees. So it's a very lucrative business. And when you look at the total fee package, it's often 3 or 4% a year. So it's extremely high, say, compared to a mutual fund that buys public stocks. And that's one of the reasons that the private equity business does not provide their investors with the good return, because the fees are simply too high. So when you quote Robert Smith, and you can tell us who he is, saying, we only make money if investors make money, and then you say, not true. That's correct. So a private equity fund manager is going to make their 2%, whether the fund makes a profit or loses a profit. They can't have a a losing season as far as they're concerned because they're going to get that 2% fixed fee on the investments whether they make money or not. Now you might say, well, then but they're not getting a performance fee if they lose money. Yeah, that's true, but you're still getting 2%. And if you're running a $1 billion private equity fund, 2% off the top is $20 million a year. You can pay a lot of people nice salaries on $20 million per year. And if you've got a, a private equity fund complex that's comprised of several funds, the fees could easily be $100 million on a fixed basis. So I like to say, you know, the private equity business is terrific because these contracts, as I noted earlier, are 10 years long. You get a fixed fee for 10 years. The investors are locked in. I mean, even... Even big basketball stars like LeBron James or big football stars like Aaron Rodgers don't get those kinds of contracts. So if you uh, could change anything in government regulation, what would it be? The best thing for the government to do in terms of protecting investors would be regulations that require a lot more disclosure and what these performance fees are, what the regular fees are what the investment results are in plain English, and distribute that kind of information widely. Right now, the private equity industry, as its name implies, is private. So a lot of this information on performance results, rates of return, fees, it's all secret. It's hush-hush, confidential. If you want to get even the most basic information, you have to subscribe to a commercial data service at a price of $25,000 per year. So as with a lot of things in business, how do you make things more above board? You shine a light on it. You shine intense sunlight so people know what's going on. Switching a little bit to another subject that you have in your book, how do you define access journalism? Well, let me just confess that my son is a newspaper reporter, so he sort of introduced me to that concept of access journalism. 
Access journalism, as I know it, is when reporters, be they newspaper or media, you know, TV or radio, are really reluctant to publish investigative pieces on prominent individuals or companies that they cover. So let's take the business media. You know, an access journalism in the media context would be that for private equity specifically, the reporter covering private equity industry does not want to write negative stories either on major players in the business, major individual players, or major funds. Because after running a story like that, the reporter is afraid of being blackballed or blacklisted, which means in in uh, you know terms that I think everybody knows, if you're writing a story of, and you write something negative about the private equity industry, then people in the business might refuse your calls, might turn down your emails. So you as a private equity reporter, by writing a negative article, has just lost access to everybody in the business you're supposed to report on. So access journalism is writing stories uh, with an intent of not destroying that access and keeping things sort of soft and uh, complimentary. Well, if you tune into Bloomberg News or CNBC or Fox Business, they constantly have experts on, so-called experts, from all these different firms, venture capital, private equity, and all this stuff. But you never know anything about them. They never give you any background about them. And uh, I, I wonder if that also applies to those television institutions that are worried that if they're critical at all of these folks, they won't come back. Yes, and I think most people, I totally agree, most people that you see on these financial programs, you know, and I I know many of them by reputation, you know, they certainly know what they're talking about, but, you know, the idea of being on a TV show is sort of getting up there and having a soapbox to talk about how great your PE fund is or how terrific the returns in your hedge fund is. You know, it's unlikely that, you know, most TV interviewers are going to hit them with hard questions. Because, again, if you do that as a TV reporter, the word is going to get around that you're a tough interviewer, and there's no obligation for business people to show up and be on these shows. So the idea is that you hit, as an interviewer, you basically give out a lot of softball questions with the uh, intention that you want to get these people to come back on the show or, or encourage others to appear on the show. So, you know, you got questions or ratings and having prominent guests versus, say, investigatory pieces or asking tough questions. Why did your son go into the newspaper business in this day and age? <laughs> a lot of people have asked me the same question. You think it's taking a vow of poverty or something or a vow of unemployment. Uh, he had an interest in reporting. He got uh, It started when he was an intern at a local newspaper here in the Washington area. He got a taste of it. The editor of the publication was sort of one of these inspiring type reporters that, you know, fought for the First Amendment, with, you know, gave good talks at the staff meeting. So he got interested in it, shifted his major in college to journalism and English, joined the college newspaper. He kind of knew when he got out of college that the business did not pay all that well, but it's a very interesting field, journalism. Uh, I think you see a lot of different people. you investigate many different subjects. I just think it's a job that keeps people on their toes, and it's very interesting. So far, he's liked it quite a bit. What about private equity and the newspaper business? I'm sure you've seen these articles where the suggestion is made they come in and buy these newspapers, which are supposedly not making money, maybe even losing money, and then they strip it and somehow flip it and they make money. How does that work? It's a sad situation. As speaking as someone who reads two or three newspapers a day, and it's highly regrettable. You need a healthy newspaper industry, I think, to keep our democracy in full strength. Usually when a private equity firm, leveraged buyout firm, looks at a business like a newspaper, they identify a couple of things they like. You know, one, the newspaper business is pretty much low-tech, so it's not that risky from an operating point of view. Secondly, a lot of newspapers these days are monopolies, 
So that's usually guaranteed cash flow when you're the only game in town, so to speak. And uh, three, often they have uh, what you call valuable real estate. So the newspapers often are very old uh, institutions in the cities where they're located, and they might own a printing press or an office building downtown that once the private equity firm takes over, they could move the newspaper operation to a cheaper location and take over the real estate. So there's several facets. There's the operating point of view where they're taking over an operating business and then trying to cut costs. And then they're also, as you point out, they're trying to strip it out of valuable real estate assets usually. So they've got two ways to make money. Um, Mainly people who are fond of newspapers don't like the fact a lot of reporters are laid off and costs are cut. And not too many are fond that the you know, the buildings themselves are sold to make apartments or, or uh, real estate uh, transactions involving new office you know, holders. There's nothing we can do about it. The private equity firms are in a situation where many of them are controlling the biggest newspapers. So don't seem to be any what you would call strategic competitors, others that want to enter the business. So the newspaper owners who you are getting older or and they want to sell out, they don't have too many choices. Uh, we've seen a few outliers where you have prominent newspapers that are then being sold to nonprofit groups and in order to kind of get these newspapers out of the clutches of these private equity owners and hedge funds, but that's been on a scattershot basis. So I'm not too optimistic. Might, someone might say, well, this is the normal evolution of capitalism where, you know, we, we break down something and then we build it back up. And some internet newspapers are coming in to replace the older ones. Uh, I, I think the progress there still has to be seen. Last couple of questions. Uh, what is an institutional investor? So we've thrown that term around a little bit. Institutional investor is a big pool of capital that's run by full-time professionals. So full-time professionals are obviously people that have MBA degrees or master's in finance degrees, have experience buying, selling stocks, bonds, commodities, private equity. So an institutional investor is usually a pool of capital that's $100 million or more. At that level, the institution, be it a university or a pension plan, can hire some full-time people that can make the investment decisions. I want to read your last couple of sentences. Actually, it may be one long sentence. Beneficiaries like to think that in institutional investors are serious people with Wharton and Harvard MBAs, and that the managers are being scientific and looking out for beneficiaries during the investment process. In the private equity sphere, what the beneficiaries get instead is a ruse carried out by experts where decision-making is fraught with a lack of independent thinking and an inability to achieve objectives and a whiff of duplicity. How long did you think that one out, and why did you end your book with that particular two sentences? You know, Brian, I think you got a point. Maybe I should write, write shorter sentences in my next book. Well, there's actually two sentences, so you're okay. <laughs> well, okay, first, a lot of people out there would think, okay, if I have professionals running the public pension plan where I have my retirement savings, they're objectives or coincide with mine, that I want to get the highest rate of return possible to increase the retirements of the union employees or what have you. Well, the one, one part of the sentence was the desire to get the highest rate of return often conflicts with the career concerns of the investment managers. So the investment managers want to show how smart they are so they can get a higher salary and more compensation in the next job. That may not involve placing all the funds in various indexes that actually do much better than a lot of these complicated investments we've talked about. So that's number one. So career concerns often trumpet getting the best returns for the investors. So that's one. The other thing is that 
there's a lot of copycat mentality in the institutional investment business. So if Yale did very well, Yale University Endowment did very well buying private equity and hedge funds, then everybody in the business copies them, whether or not that's a rational strategy. They copy them because there's a lot of herd mentality on Wall Street, and that's often not the best thing for the investor beneficiaries, the university constituents, the retirees. Copycat herd mentality often does not produce the best returns for them. So you have careers, you have copycat, and the last part where I say there's duplicity, and that really reflects the fact that, as we kind of covered a little earlier, the private equity industry runs around and says, we're the greatest thing since sliced bread. We provide much higher rates of return than the public stock market with lower levels of risk. There's only one problem with that marketing pitch. It's not true. The returns are not really higher than the stock market. And the level of risk, as we've covered briefly, is not lower than the stock market. So you have career concerns, you have herd mentality, and then you have some misinformation and hype. And that sort of covered the book in two sentences, as you pointed out. We've been talking about the myth of private equity, the title of Jeffrey Hook's book. The subtitle is An Inside Look at Wall Street's Transformative Investments. <clears throat> Excuse me. And it was published by Columbia Business School. Jeffrey Hook, thank you very much for this hour. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org.